Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This episode is a special highlights episode to celebrate the opening of applications to our NHS Foundation Fellowship Programme. The NHS is, of course, a unique and also highly pressurised work environment. And so in this episode, I have picked clips from my interviews with NHS leaders that have particularly resonated and that I think are really thought provoking for us all. I hope you enjoy listening back as much as I did. The first clip is from my very first episode of the podcast, then it was still called Leaders with Babies, with Dr. Susie Minson. Susie is a consultant paediatrician. She is a mum of three and a fellow on the very first Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme cohort in 2018. We talk about changing perceptions about being a working mum, returning to work and tips on overcoming challenges. When I was pregnant with my first child, I was super excited to become a mother. But I also was quite anxious in a way about what this would mean for me professionally. I was 32 and I had my youngest child. And I'd, so I'd been a doctor for quite a few years. I was quite committed to a career in paediatrics. And that was my career path was to be a junior doctor in paediatrics and to become a consultant. And I very much had that vision. And I'd always worked full time and, you know, been very career focused prior to having my first child. But, you know, I knew that I was definitely going to have a good period of time of maternity leave. I, I took nine months off with my first. And I knew that coming back to work would mean returning to, you know, quite long hours, night shifts, working weekends. And I was anxious about how that would work in terms mm. of what it would mean for my home life and spending time with my child. But also I was kind of anxious in the other way about would I be able to be committed at work? And would I, you know, would I feel it for myself in terms of that commitment to my career? But also I was very conscious of how would other people judge me because I suppose I'd very much had seen myself before as someone that was extremely reliable and dependable and, you know, a hard worker that would get the job done. And I was a little bit worried about, you know, how that perception might change. And I suppose I also had another kind of theme that I was wondering how being a mother would change me in terms of how I felt about my work. And I suppose in my work, a big part of my job is seeing children who are very sick and unwell and who you know, I have huge potential problems in their lives. And I had always felt that I'd coped with that quite well before I had children. And I also knew that that might change when I had my own children. So mm. that, yeah, there were lots of things I was sort of quite anxious about, particularly with my first pregnancy. Mm. And can you say something about how your thinking evolved either after that particular pregnancy or as you went on to have more children? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things for me was that I Although I really enjoyed my maternity leave, it was really clear to me being on maternity leave that actually I really missed my job. And mm. in a way that was really powerful because it helped me realize that actually 
although it was wonderful to become a mother, I really loved my job and getting back to my job and, you know, continuing that through my, the rest of my life was going to be really important to me. So in some ways it was a really empowering to have that break from work and that it really made me realize how much I did love my job. So in terms of returning to work, I came back to work after my first child working 60% of full time. So I worked mm-hmm. three days a week, most weeks. And I did find coming back to work quite challenging in lots of ways. I think actually I had good childcare and leaving my child, that sort of turned out to be okay. And I felt that three days a week did give me a really good work-life balance. In terms of returning to work, I think the biggest challenges for me were actually not how other people treated me because in my workplace, I felt that I was very much welcomed back as a less than full-time worker and that people were very understanding about what I could and couldn't commit to. But I did find the things I found hardest was Firstly, the kind of sense of confidence in myself. I felt worried that I had forgotten things or that things that I used to feel confident on, I no longer was had that sort of sense of certainty that I was definitely doing it correctly. And then also I did find the impact of seeing children that were the same age or similar age to my own child that were very sick or, you know, potentially going to have a poor outcome was really challenging. And I think that did change for me between, you know, not having children and having my own children. It definitely needed a period of adjustment when I came back. I can imagine. And during that period of adjustment or as you prepared for your return to work, what really helped you both during your first maternity leave and your last? What helped you overcome those challenges? So I think the thing that made the biggest difference to me was probably time. And with every time that I've come back, I've definitely had that sense of feeling that I'm a bit rusty and not feeling that confidence in myself and my abilities. And it's always got better with time. I think the thing that made the biggest difference probably was hearing from senior colleagues who'd had children to get that honest reassurance Mm. that what I was feeling was normal and didn't mean that there was a problem with me and the reassurance that it would get better. And I think also the external reassurance that although I may feel rusty, that that wasn't what people perceived or what people were seeing. And Mm. so that also gave me the confidence to feel that I I could Mm. do it. And then I think a big thing for me with with the two maternity leaves I had subsequently was that I trusted in myself that I'd sensed I had had this feeling before and that it had got better. And that actually part of it was that I needed to be a bit kinder to myself in that not expecting to be right back where I had been on day one, but that it would come. And I think that's been a big difference as well in the subsequent times I've taken maternity leave Mm. compared to the first time. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think the point around seeing role models who've been there and done that and also being basically your own role model, right? Because you (laughs) had been through (laughs) through it. I think that's so important. And sometimes you, especially for people who work in male-dominated environments, that can be really tough. If you're the first woman who goes yes. on maternity leave or your first dad who takes shared parental leave. And that, well, as you know, that's why we have the mentors, which is really powerful on the Leaders Plus program. The next clip is with another pioneer and change maker in the NHS. It's from episode six of the podcast with Professor Jane Dacon. We talk about working on the very first job share in the NHS, the importance of strong role models and why it's important to remain in the workplace to close the gender pay gap, if you can. I negotiated to work four days a week. And the reason why I did that was because I needed to do the shopping on a Friday. It was before internet shopping. And I I (laughs) knew that I could do everything I needed to be able to do if I had a day off to do the shopping and say hello to my children. 
And so I did that. And after I'd done that for a few years with Tim, who was the guy I'd shared the job with, the two of us were were very good colleagues. He said to me, it's the most fantastic quote that Tim probably has no idea how influential it was in my career. When he said to me, Jane, isn't it time you became a full-time skiver like the men rather than a part-time martyr like the women? And I realized that I was martyring myself by doing five days work in four days in order to be able to do the shopping. Mm. Mm, And he said, if I want to play golf or if I'm going to an academic meeting, I just go. And Mm. it really resonated with me and and it changed my mindset about what I would be able to do. So actually then I went up to full-time and I've worked full-time ever since. Mm. Fantastic. But at the same time, you did what you needed to do. I wasn't thinking, who do I need to influence? I was just thinking, well, in order to do what I feel I need to do or I want to do, this is the best way forward. Mm. Occasionally, people used to say some dodgy things to me and that used to spur me on. So what inspired me maybe anger at people who told me I wouldn't be able to do it. There was one stage when I hadn't finished writing up my thesis and I was a senior registrar and I was also doing general medicine and I was pregnant. A senior college person took me on one side. I think it was the college tutor or someone with a formal role took me on one side and said, look, Jane, this is ridiculous. You cannot be a researcher and a physician and have babies. You've got to choose. It is just not possible to do all of this. So you've got to choose. So I think he was trying to help me. Well, he did help me, I suppose, by making me so angry that I felt like saying, look, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I've set out to do this. I am going to do this. And you're not going to stop me. Mm. At the time, though, I was at Bart's in the mid-1980s. There were a lot of inspirational women around. The role model I often quote is Parveen Kumar. So Parveen was an Asian lady with two children who was working full-time in medicine, and she was fine. So she inspired me. Leslie Reese, who was the dean at the time, didn't have children, but was a woman. And there was also Leslie Southgate, who was the professor of primary care there. So I did have strong role models who spurred me on but to sort of go back and answer your question I wasn't being strategic I was just doing what needed to be done Hmm. and is there anything you would do differently with the benefit of hindsight I think then it was very difficult to know what I could have done differently I think that people now actually have many more opportunities to work less than full-time or to do things flexibly. And if I could have done, I would have preferred to do that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you tell your daughters, any advice that you give them? So I'm constant, uh, currently trying to mentor my oldest daughter back to work. Uh, she went back two weeks ago after having had a year off for maternity leave. So I have to say one of the things that that... I would do differently or that I think she did better than me was to take enough time off around your children. When you were quite an outlier by having children, there was a lot of pressure on you to get back to work quickly and then to just pretend they didn't exist. Mm. And that was quite hard. So in mentoring 
Claire, my daughter, I, first of all, am very keen that she should go back to work. And I'm very clear that I think she will have a better life if she goes back to work. Why is that? Because I look around me and I see my peers who gave up work and see them having much narrower lives and much less fulfillment. So they haven't done nearly as many things as I've been able to do. They haven't had nearly as many opportunities as I've been able to do. And although at the time it's hard, it's really hard, to me, working through it and having a fulfilling career and also having children is fantastic. It's a huge privilege. And you're able to give to your patients, to your students, to your research and to your family. And it's a very fulfilling way of living your life. Mm. And so I'm very keen that Claire should do that. Now, recently, I've started being involved in the gender pay gap. And I have seen the huge financial penalty that motherhood brings to women in mm -hmm. the health service, and particularly to lady doctors. Mm -hmm. And I can see that by maintaining your position in the workplace, that that pay gap reduces. My daughter is a, a teacher, but the problems are the same, I'm sure, in education. And so I think in order to have equality as women, it's worth making sure that you remain in the workplace if you can. The next clip is with Dr. Geraldine Strasti, OBE. She describes herself as a community psychiatrist and she's a real change maker. She was the National Clinical Director for Mental Health and NHS England and a visiting professor for integrated mental health education programmes at UCL Partners. And she holds lots and lots of other accolades. But talking to her, what comes through is that she is here to drive real change. And she did that whilst bringing up young children at the time. Um, I hope you enjoy our snippet from the conversation. I felt it was important for my children to see me as who I was as well. I can remember one particular Christmas when I had four of my children at four different schools because they were all different ages. And each school seemed to have a parents' night, a Christmas play or a fundraiser and a carol singing. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, how am I going to get the time to go to work? Because, of course, in mental health, while almost everybody else in the system is saying, isn't it lovely? We can wind down. It's Christmas. Actually, Christmas is a really, really lonely, difficult time for people that have mental health challenges. So I remember some of those really busy times, both at home and at work. You know, you've asked me before, what do I think are the top tips for people? How did I kind of survive some of those things and keep going? I used to have a Friday afternoon where I would sit with another really good friend who was a pediatrician with young children, and we would eat iced buns. And there was something about that Friday afternoon as our children played. It was a safe space knowing that however frenetic it is in the week, on that one set point in the week, we've got real downtime. Just somebody that you trust totally, you can have fun with. I think knowing where you can use resources, what resources are available to you is very helpful. Good childcare. There is nothing that I used to find more stressful than if I didn't feel I had warm, kind, loving, highly competent childcare. And it's for me, that was, I couldn't leave home without knowing that there was really good childcare for my children. I've had all different sorts of childcare over time. 
I know that being a parent and always wanting to get back to my children and be there for the stories and bath time and playing and homeworks, that meant I used my time at work, very task-oriented, very task-focused, not terribly patient, I would say, about sitting in meetings where people were talking. And do you feel being a parent has influenced how you have been in a leader in any shape or form? Absolutely, completely. I was and I continue to be a very different sort of leader because I had my children. And because I think the joy of children and the real challenge, I think parenting is actually the hardest job. I think it is absolutely the hardest job because you have to love the child you have, not the one that you thought you were going to get or necessarily the one that is like you at all. Because every child is different, and like every patient, you know, it really helped me that the parallels and some of my children are dyslexic, as am I. And that motto of the Dyslexia Society is, if they don't learn the way you teach, then teach the way they learn. And that I find really helpful with my own children in helping them optimize their potential. I find it hugely helpful with my patients because instead of doing care plans with people where we were kind of the experts in the team suggesting the care plan, my mantra to my patients used to be, so guess what? There are 26 letters in the English alphabet. So if care plan A doesn't work, we can go to B, C, D, E. I've never had to go beyond G. And the way we're going to do that is we've sat together and worked on care plan A. When you come back again and work together Let's see which bits of that have worked for you and which bits haven't. And then we'll build on the bits that have worked. And however we've done it and what, however you've managed to approach it, we will incorporate that into the next plan. I think being a clinician that can work with people to help them really realize their potential as people, as well as the recovery and the improvement in their ill health, is that was hugely satisfying. That wouldn't have happened. And I think also because of having children and having to juggle time and having to have really, really tight time management, I think learning to find ways to work with people efficiently. So I've always been really puzzled by why clinically people aren't very clear with patients at the beginning. So let's just sit down at the beginning and work out what is our contract of working together? What do you want to get out of this relationship? And I can tell you what I can offer. And I think often clinically people drift into seeing people over and over again, sometimes in outpatient clinics, sometimes in care coordinating roles, without there being clarity about what the contract is between you. So I think being able to be efficient. The other thing is thinking much more about how do you make it easier for people? So you, you make things easier for your children. You're constantly looking to say, what can I do to help them walk or help them learn to read or help them do whatever? How can I break down any fear or concerns they have? And you take that into the workplace. And I have to say, having now got in the last amazing year two grandchildren, the utter joy of being able to, and as a grandparent, I have to say, you have a lot more time to spend just looking at their assets, looking at what they're good at, looking at if they appear to be left-handed, can you help them become a bit more ambidextrous? Vice versa, if they've got socialization skills, helping them to do that. Those are things that to me are totally transferable attitudes and cultures that you can take between being a parent and being a leader in the work, whatever kind of work mm. you're doing. I spoke to Dr. Sukhana Ahmed on postnatal depression and dealing with feelings of guilt as a working mom. We recorded this conversation during the pandemic at the very beginning, and I remember how struck I was by her positivity and by her ability to find 
opportunities and to look at things with a sense of possibility, even in the darkest of times. Um, I hope you enjoy the snippet I have chosen for you. Yeah, I had postnatal depression with Daniel. I was really unwell after he was born. And so I have always held a lot of guilt. And the guilt was about not being emotionally there for him in the first sort of few months of his life, um, about not eating. It was all those sort of usual things. And then I went back to work and I suddenly realised that I liked work and I enjoyed it. And I, at the time, it felt awful. I enjoyed the time away and being a different person. So guilt has always been an issue for me. And yes, during this, I have been at work. Had I've needed to work in the evenings a bit more. I have needed to check my emails on the weekend. I have, when we're in the middle of something, I have needed to sort of go and deal with it. So yes, there has been guilt and vice versa. So I only work a a certain number of sessions a week because the other sessions I'm with Dan. So when I've been at home and I know that my team are still there and struggling and there are 10 things going on and I can't be there, I have felt guilty. I think I've accepted that I... I'm one of those people that will probably always feel a bit guilty. I will always feel like I'm not doing either one particularly well or not completely. But I think what I found is various sort of resources and things that make that easier. So the Leaders Plus program has made me realise wanting both a bad thing. I surround myself with people, again, that show me they have done it and so I can do it. I've got a very supportive family. I've got a really good set of friends. A lot of my friends are mums and career women. So that is helpful. So I guess there's a little bit of acceptance that... I will possibly always feel the guilt. It was nowhere near as bad as it used to be. And there's also sort of knowing that Daniel sees me as more than just his mum. He sees me as someone that helps other people. I really do think that that is part of the reason he's so kind and loving because he does what he mirrors. So I think that has, I tell myself that splitting myself in the two benefits me and him. Mm. And there is something really freeing, like you say, about the idea of just accepting that we do have guilt and it's probably part of us because we've all been socialized. Well, maybe not you, but I definitely have been socialized with an ideal mother, what an ideal mother does. And I don't quite live up to that. So the idea of just embracing the guilt, accepting it's there, but not be led by it. My dad went out to work sort of all the time and that's in my head was always what a mum was like so I've sort of had the same thing and I think I've said this to you before I found it difficult at school because there are the stay-at-home mums who always go to everything who are always able to be there and there are people like me who have to pick and choose what they go to for Daniel because actually I can't go to everything so there is this sort of guilt from that aspect as well. It's liberating. I think I know that I will always feel guilty. It will always be difficult. But I also know a lot of my postnatal depression arose from that guilt. So I can see how it is negative and it isn't productive. Mm. So it's there, but I try not to dwell on it and ruminate on it. Mm. Yeah, thank you for being so open in sharing that because so many um, experience postnatal depression and I think we're just not talking 
enough about it and understanding that it is something so normal that happens so many people is incredibly I mean it's especially people like me and like whoever people that have a sort of high functioning career women who are used to being in control of things used to knowing the answer used to having lists and those sorts of things and suddenly this baby comes along and you can't do all the things that you're supposed to so Daniel came three weeks early. He wouldn't breastfeed. He was very sick after he was born. He had colic. So there were all these things that I just could not control. And for someone like me, where my job is all about those things, I was suddenly plucked out of my comfort zone into something else. So being a mum in the biggest challenge of my life. And, you know, I've sat exams. I've been in A&E and done trauma. But being that new mum was the scariest place that I've ever been. And, and I just feel really passionate that absolutely we should be talking about it more. And I suspect there are lots and lots of women out there, working women, successful women that feel like they are completely out of their depth and feel like they're not the right sort of mother. And that makes me really sad because I think if I hadn't had that, I would have enjoyed my experience as a new mum so much more. If you want to listen to the whole of Suhana's episode, it's from episode 24. On the rare occasion where, if you are a doctor, you work Monday to Friday in a hospital, that is as if the Friday was a day where you work mostly for free. Sadly, the picture doesn't look much better when you look at the pay gap of nurses or allied health professionals, midwives, etc. A lot of that inequality is due to parents, especially mums' careers, getting stuck when they have children. And that is why we have launched a specific fellowship program for parents with young children in the NHS who want to progress their careers. Nurses, doctors, midwife, pharmacists, non-clinical staff, etc. are all welcome. It's accredited by the Faculty for Medical Leadership and Management and there are part-sponsored places for members of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, where we have up to 10 of those. You'll join a really supportive network of non-judgmental peers, and you get support to develop your career alongside your family in an environment that supports confidence and courage without burning the candle at all ends. Applications close on the 11th of July, but we accept applicants on a rolling basis. Those who apply sooner will obviously be able to choose their preferred dates. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. So leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. And any questions for me, just get in touch. My email is verina at leadersplus.org.uk. Next up is Dr. Becky Maxwell. We talk about tips for dealing with uncertainty, especially when working in emergency medicine. And this also was recorded during times of COVID. So she has some really practical tips of how to find stillness in that eye of the storm. Uncertainty, I think, has always been a large part of my work, no matter what role I've been in. And I think you will find that most emergency medicine clinicians and nurses and anyone who works in the department almost thrives a little bit on uncertainty. And that's something we've had to adapt. That That's why we chose emergency medicine as a career. No day is the same and every day throws up new challenges. And being able to adapt to uncertainty is key skill. And this is something that I have developed throughout my training, throughout my time as an emergency medicine consultant. And it's something that has stood me in really good stead over the last few months. And I think 
in order to bring the best to patients in the department when you're at work, you need to be able to adapt quickly to changing situations. Sometimes this isn't without stress and how you manage stress is important and having an excellent team around you and having people you can count on is key. I think one of the most important things about uncertainty in work is a lack of hierarchy. And I think this is something that is very unique to emergency medicine in some terms. So, for example, we all call each other by our first name, no matter who you are in the department, what your job is. Should you be the professor that walks in, we call him by his nickname. Everyone refers to me as Becky. And I think there's been a lot of work done on this in terms of clinical EYs on human factors and being able to challenge each other. And I think being challenged initially was something that when I started in my emergency medicine career and then took on a leadership role, being lead of the emergency department for a few years, that I find quite challenging and I took really personally and it's something I've had to work on. So I think in the era of uncertainty, being able to be challenged by your colleagues, taking a step back and rethinking what you're doing is vitally important. In terms of family life, you're right as well. There's a whole lot of uncertainty at the moment. I don't know if I'm going to get a call from nursery saying that someone in Turlow's bubble has had a positive test and all of a sudden that you know, he's in isolation for two weeks and we have to find a way to get childcare to work. And that's really difficult at the moment. And I think being flexible with each other and having a really good system where if that happens to one of your colleagues, everyone seems to be prepared to step up and cover and help out and do shifts and swap shifts and just be flexible as possible. And that's how we make it work practically. In the era of COVID as well, a lot of things have switched to online. When we spoke about uncertainty and childcare last Thursday, my son had a vomiting bug. So all of a sudden I found myself in the situation where I was at home. I wasn't working clinically that day, but I did have meetings to attend and helpfully being able to do some of those meetings virtually, swap over with my husband, who's also doing virtual meetings from home and make sure that we provided childcare. Plus we're able to continue to attend things and works really well. And One of the positive things I think to have come out of the last few months is the ability to work from home, the ability to do things online, the ability also to understand that perhaps the hours that you keep in work don't need to be as rigid as used to be. So if you had a day of meetings or a day of sitting at home doing papers and working on things managerially, you could do that around hours that your child was perhaps being homeschooled if that was a situation you're in. And Being able to work in an environment where that is important and now has almost become the norm, I think helps with uncertainty in the future. And I think it will be the norm and certainly Mm. change the way people approach various situations as we go forward because COVID isn't going away. These periods of Mm. isolation aren't going away. And being able to lead to a certain extent as well when you're in a management role and allow people that flexibility is the only way that you're going to get the best out of your team and ensure that they're all well they're all happy and they're all productive this was from episode 41 if you want to listen to the whole chat becky and i had next up is dr karen squires she's also one of the leaders plus fellows um, her place was part funded by the royal college for emergency medicine and she and i have a really open conversation about deciding to have children in the middle of a demanding career and she did that obviously in emergency medicine and about being kind to yourself. And Karen, I have to say, is such an interesting story because she was always passionate about learning, started off um, 
learning about hairdressing, excelling in that area, and then decided she wanted to excel in other areas after having founded her own hairdressing business and became an emergency medicine consultant and continues to push herself to learn and challenge. There's no clear path. You know, there's very few people jump from A to B. And sometimes I understand now, as a mother of a three-year-old at 53, I understand that the meandering path has made me who I am today and not jumping from A to B. So there may be other alternatives to take a step towards your goal, which is a a bit more of a bite size, but actually is taking you in the right direction. So it's about just taking a bit of a sensible look at it as well and think, right, do I have to take a leap and go from A to B or actually can we go via another route or something a bit more practical in the shorter term? Also, there's no rush. You know, there's no rush. I mean, I was never going to get to medical school any quicker I had to do the A-levels. There was the, whether I liked that or not, there was no way around it. So it still took me a couple of years to get that far. And it's about having that realistic time frame as well with it and think, okay, maybe I don't need to do it right now, but maybe I'll put it next on my list when this issue at the moment is over or, or whatever. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to do it all right now. So it's just about being sensible about it as well, but not letting that fire go if that's what you really, really want. Mm. You've alluded that you have a three-year-old and... Did you say you were 53? So you had 53. her at 49, I think I remember you saying. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you had kids at very at two quite different stages in life. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, actually, I'm going to ask two different questions, which is not helpful. Well, first of all, <laughs> I want to ask, what made you decide to have a second child at this stage in your life? And how was it different to have a child now where you are very established in your career, you're a fellow of this, that, and the other, and, you know, everyone would look up to you too. I presume you had your younger daughter when you were still training. Yes, yes. For me, I had always planned on having children, regardless of how or when or whatever. It was like, it's always going to happen. I remember having a conversation with my mum when I was quite young, saying, I don't want children until I'm in my 40s. And my mum nearly had a heart attack because, you know, <laughs> that was <laughs> that's far too old, you know. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, having spent most of my 20s and 30s trying not to conceive, suddenly when I became, I was a registrar in emergency medicine and my husband, we'd been married about two or three years. My husband is a little bit older than me. He's five years older than me. And it was like, well, do you know what? There's probably a wrong time, but there's never a good time. So, you know, that's, that's just kind of, the more we think about it, the more we're going to put it off. Let's just kind of, you know, crack on. Like, so we did. And so the first time I conceived, it was without a problem. I was 38 then. And that was fine. It was no problem. That was just, this is what you do. This is great. This is lovely. We had a home and all the rest of it and jobs and careers. And that was great. And I probably didn't give an awful lot of thought to what was going to happen afterwards. Maybe I was a bit too idealistic. I was classed as a geriatric mother then (laughs) at 38. So (laughs) yeah, just don't talk about now. But anyway, so I had my daughter, which was a problem. And then Having that child, although she was just delightful and I absolutely adored being a mom and all the rest of it, I was definitely, I felt like I'd been hit by a freight train. And I think that, you know, that happens to some people. Some people just completely slot into motherhood and feel wonderful all the time. I was like, oh my word, I feel like I've been hit by a train. And it was quite a challenge from a work point of view. I went back to work when Cicely was six months old. And that was a kind of a choice that my husband and I made at the time. Around about the time it was the kind of financial crash of 2007, 2008. And a lot of my husband's work had dried up because he's a builder and stuff like that. And it was a bit like, well, look, actually, you know, it's probably better that I go back to work because it's a bit more of a reliable income and all the rest of it. So it was like, we made that conscious choice. With the retrospectoscope now, I was incredibly unsupported at that time, not at home, but in work. 
I definitely went through a period of postnatal depression. Work was hard. Training was hard. You know, plus the fact that I had this enormous guilt that I was leaving my small person behind. You know, I was very fortunate. My mum stepped in to help with, with childcare. There was no better person I could leave my child with and all the rest of it. But I really struggled in that time, really struggled in that time. And I always kind of thought it'll be better next time. I'll do a better job next time because I won't have to go back to work so soon and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll, I'll do the other. So that's kind of how we went. And it was, we got through that and it was okay. And then kind of fast forward a, a couple of years and two pregnancies further down the line, which had failed, I found myself diagnosed with secondary infertility. So obviously the first child had not been a problem, but then the problems kicked in after. Now at this point I was 40, coming up to 40 and suddenly then all the conversation shifted away from, yes, this is wonderful. I'm sure you'll get pregnant too. Actually, <laughs> you need to get a grip of how old you are. The chances are it's not going to happen, blah, 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 blah. And this was just devastating, absolutely devastating to me because I've, well, hang on, this family, this, this family that I thought was going to be so easy, maybe naively is, you know, hang on, what's, what's going on? What's going on? You know, my husband and I talked, jokingly talked about having a football team and, and all the rest of it, you know, and suddenly it was, and having been an only child myself until I was 10, I didn't want my daughter to just be on her own. And that was purely a personal thing. I have no problem with other people just having one child. I, for, it was a very personal thing for me. And I was almost hell bent on, on having another child. You know, the reality check came in the form of, you know, one of the fertility doctors at you know, a hospital said to me, you need to get your head around this, that the only way you're going to conceive is through IVF. So it was like, okay, so that was a blow. And then it was like, well, okay, if that's what we've got to do, then that's what we'll do. So then we had uh, 10 years, more or less, of IVF, multiple rounds, which is another story in itself, especially while you're working. And I was, I think I was, became a consultant at this. I, th- I became a consultant about, about 34, I think. So that was a challenge. So all of those things to consider. And then I found myself in a position just, I mean, the IVF was really physically demanding as well as mentally. It's a lot bigger deal than people actually give it credit for, I think. Now, I remember having a conversation with my husband. We had one egg left and the last kind of IVF cycle that we'd had had been particularly traumatizing. And I just said, I don't think I can do it again. You know, so it was like, okay, well, you know, that's fine. We'll put it to one side and and we'll just move on. But I couldn't. It was like this one little tiny egg, the poor little thing is in the freezer. And and it was like, look, okay, do you know what we'll do? Let's just do one more go. We'll just do this one more try. And then we'll put it to bed. Then we will literally draw a line and we will move on. I kind of made a bit of a vow to myself that for one of my 50th birthday things was going to be, I was going to become a mum again by hook or by crook. So it was like, okay, if this doesn't work, then we'll adopt. You know, we've got room in our family for other children. Let's let's do that. Okay, that's fine. That's what we'll do. And then she worked. The last egg worked. And you could have knocked me over with a feather when they told me that it was not just, you know, it, she wasn't just there, but she was viable. And, you know, I'm expected due date was a week before my 50th birthday. <laughs> like it wasn't by design. I'd kind of forgotten how old I was in all of that. Mm. Like, and then, so yeah. I'd kind of resign myself to the fact that it wasn't going to work. And then it did. I definitely felt like the gods were watching or something. Mm. I don't know. And she worked. And I mean, and she's just a complete joy. You know, I really probably didn't, again, maybe naively, I don't know. I didn't really understand the impact of what I was doing at the time. I've always been quite chipper and just, yeah, come on, crack on. And and suddenly it's like, what? (laughs) You know, I'm going to be 50 with a newborn. 
which was a completely different set of challenges. <laughs> mm. I can't imagine how tough it must be to go through all these IVF cycles and have bad news. And I know that some people report that the hormones have a significant impact on the mood as well, aside from the whole thing being traumatizing. Have you learned anything about dealing with extreme stresses and working at the same time? Do you think you're going to do that differently? Should you ever have a really challenging experience again? I hope not, but I'm, I'm interested in what you learned from that sort of really traumatizing experience. So I think probably it's around about, you've got to be kind to yourself. I'm Working in emergency medicine is a very unique environment. You know, we deal with the day-to-day. We also deal with horrendous off the scale things. And both of those things are within our remit and everything in between. And so there is an element of me or an emergency physician that just kind of gets on with it and just kind of gets used to it, you know, and, you know, is, is your leg hanging off? Oh yeah, actually, you know, it's those kind of things, you know, and I always laugh about, you know, I see other people do really wonderful, wonderful things. They will love going to the theater and I see these actors doing these wonderful things. And I look and I go, my God, when I think of what I do for money, you know, <laughs> genuinely like you can have you can be up to your elbows in what you don't want to know you know and and all this kind of stuff and you you kind of walk away and then you, you just go yeah whatever and you just kind of get on with it and so there was an element of me that just kind of got on with it because that's what you do you know and so Lorelai was my seventh pregnancy so I'd had kind of a, n- a number of miscarriages in between and you know I remember being on shift and then thinking like knowing I was pregnant and then going uh-oh you know, something's happening, but actually, you know, well, I'm finishing in an hour. So if I just carry on, you know, and stuff like that, it's like, hang on, you know, you've got to stop. If I, looking back now, I probably needed to be a little bit kinder to myself. I'm definitely a lot kinder to myself now. I've learned a lot of that, you know, I just have to stop and just take a little breath and think, right, actually, what do I need to do? And I always used to take me out of the equation. It was like these things were happening and I used to be the one to deal with it and just get on with it and make it make it all okay. But actually, I understand now that I am instrumental in that. I am actually part of that equation. And so looking after me is equally as important. So yeah, that's probably my biggest lesson really. And I feel like that now. I mean, the environment of emergency medicine at the moment is incredibly challenging. And so it also makes me, a, I think, a better leader because actually I, I understand other people's challenges and I've got no problem in actually being kinder to them than they are, if you like, like mm. already stepping in and saying, no, what you need to do is go home. What you need to do is go and have a break, go and take a rest, go and have a cup of tea. You know, I will step in with that before they will, because I understand that they might be like me and just crack on with it anyway and mm. be actually really hiding the, how they really feel. And if, if they're not looking after themselves, then nobody is. That was from episode 95, if you want to listen to the whole episode. Next up is episode 100 from Kate Jarman. You might have come across her if you're on social media. She is a key part of the Flex NHS campaign. And we talk about building a movement for change, which she has done for flexible working in the NHS, and about the best piece of advice she received when coming back to work after leave. I've been really fortunate. In the bosses that I've had, I really in the NHS. So when I had my first daughter, my chief executive at the time left while I was on maternity leave. I remember coming to see me on maternity leave to say that she was leaving, and I was devastated because she was, a, you know, great boss and was really supportive of me. But I was really lucky coming back because the person that was acting into her role gave me some great advice, which I've never forgotten, and which I pass on quite a lot actually. Which was 
when you come back to work, I had a very set idea about what I would do when I came back to work and the days I'd work and how it would all work together. And none of it did work. And she said to me, just be willing to be flexible with how you want to come back to work and what you try, because actually it might not work and that's fine. And give yourself permission for it to not work and then to do something different and to try different things. And it was great advice because what I thought would work well for work didn't. And so I did end up changing the way that I worked when I first came back from maternity leave. And when I went on maternity leave, I then got a, a new boss, the permanent chief exec, who is still my boss now all these years later. And was really fortunate that I had great support from him. I had two more children, had great support from him. One in an organisation I worked with him at before. And I went on maternity leave then and he left. <laughs> it, was like a, it was like a thing whenever I went on maternity leave, my boss seemed to leave. And then when I came back and, and worked there for a, a little while, I, he then advertised a role that I applied for in this organisation. I've been working here for the last eight years or so and had another had my youngest child, obviously, when I was working here. So I think I've been really fortunate around flexibility and having bosses that have really supported and championed that. And actually, my, my boss has got two children, twins, who are a year or just under a year older than my eldest. And so was also doing a lot of juggling about, you know, being a parent. So, again, really got it and was really supportive. So I started kind of talking a lot about flexible working and sort of being the kind of working parent sort of juggle, really, I suppose, on Twitter when, my, when I'd come back to work after my youngest child was born. And then a few years ago now, so I think it's three years since we started Flex NHS, I met a friend who's now a really good friend, co-founder of Flex NHS over Twitter. who would had a really tough time coming back to work after maternity leave. And we'd been talk, we were sort of talking, just we met over Twitter and just exchanging kind of tweets and commenting on threads about how easy or difficult it was to come back to work after having kids. And I talked about, you know, how fortunate I'd been and also that I was in a really senior position. So I was a director at that time and able to dictate a lot of my own time and set my own agendas about how I would use my time and day. But actually, the most people in the NHS couldn't do that. That was not something they were able to do. They were very time bound and very dictated to by their rota and by the demands of that race, whether it's a shift pattern or whether it's whatever it might be. So we kind of got together, Asher and I, and said we wanted to do something about that. We really wanted to amplify the voices of those people who found it really difficult to get flexibility at work and to juggle working parenthood particularly, but not only working parenthood, to get flexibility of all kinds to be able to juggle work and life. And so we set up Flex NHS to do that together. And we were really lucky because we teamed up with some really wonderful influencers really early on in the campaign who really helped to amplify what we were doing and to work with us to reach lots of people. And it's been a great campaign. It is a great campaign to be involved in. I feel very, very passionately about it. And I think we've seen some great changes in flexible working in the NHS, but we've got so much more to do. So that's how it came about, really through the sort of wonder of Twitter, being able to find a great friend and a great network of people who were all interested in this area and wanted to see change happen. And does it give our listeners a flavour? What makes your heart sing the most when you think about that campaign? What's the moment that or the change that you're proudest of? So I'm really proud. And when people contact us looking for help and support, and we're able to, you know, we're able to give that or we're able to hold a space for them to talk to us about what they're struggling with. Or we put out content that really resonates with people and encourages them to, for example, you know, apply for flexible working and to use the resources that we've put together to support them in that. And then they come back to us and say it was successful or I applied for a job I never thought I would never have applied for without without seeing you know, your campaign and your encouragement. So that makes me really proud. I think we've also seen, we've been part of working with NHS England around a huge policy shift in the NHS to make flexible working a day one employment right and to make roles flexible by default. 
I think that happened last year contractually, and it's huge, actually. It's really huge. You know, it goes well in excess of the, the current legislation around statutory flexible working requests and is a really, really positive thing for people working in the NHS in this country. But having said that, we've got so much to do in order to bring it to life um, to people, to make it accessible and to do that sort of cultural work around flexibility and flexible working. And I think COVID and working through a pandemic changed the world of work and in the NHS, but it's how we take the good from, you know, around hybrid working, for example, how we enable clinicians to work flexibly, how we bring parity and to flexible working in the NHS for different staff groups. So we've still got so much to do. I think it's really exciting. It's a hugely exciting challenge. And actually, if we want to retain people in the NHS, which we really, really do, <laughs> we have to get this right. You know, it's really important for people. And I know you're, I'm kind of preaching to the converted here on, probably on this podcast, but both it, when you're coming back to work after a big life change, like having a baby, but also at every different stage of your career, whether you're dealing with illness, whether you're dealing with caring responsibilities, whether it's retirement, all of those different things, you know, flexibility can really, really help and support people at work. So yeah, I think it's it's hugely important and transformative for the workplace. I hope you enjoyed this compilation episode. If you have any feedback and if you think we should do more of those or less, then do let me know. And if you're listening to this and you haven't yet been part of our rent or our fellowship program, then do consider applying to the NHS fellowship for which applications close on 27th of June. All the details, including the program overview, are on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. You'll join a group of, in my view, amazing parents who also are passionate about their career, who want to make a difference, but also who want to be present with their children. And you'll join this six month program designed to give you the courage and tools so you can progress your career um, and also set your boundaries um, in a way that works for you and your families. Um, any questions, get in touch and any feedback, as always, let me know. And if you want to listen to any of the episodes in full that we've clipped together for this week, then that's all in the show notes. So you should be able to find out the information there. Thank you for listening and have a great week. Bye.